So um, we are really uh, getting close to the end of our inaugural season of this uh, theological equipping class. So just wanted to say thank you for uh, being committed and uh, and coming each week and kind of uh, giving us a chance to start this new tradition in uh, the life of the church. That's what we'll actually be talking about this morning is the church, the doctrine of the church, which is called ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. That's what we'll be talking about uh, this morning. Uh, ecclesiology from the Greek word ekklesia, and, uh, and that is a word that uh, throughout the scriptures is used just to translate uh, the idea of a congregation, an assembly, or just a gathering. It's, uh, it's formed... Uh, it's formed from uh, a, uh, a sense of those who are called out. So ek as a prefix means out. Uh, klesia is uh, from a root that means to be called. So uh, ekklesia, the congregation, those who have been called out, those who have been consecrated to the Lord and called out from among another people to be this distinct people. That's what... Uh, the ecclesia is, that's what uh, the church is. Our English word church comes from the word for Lord. And so last, uh, last week we considered a passage where we talked about the Lord said to my Lord, and we said how in Greek that is the word kurios. And so the word church actually comes from that, kuriakon. It, it is those who are of the Lord. And, uh, and so that's what uh, the church is. It's, uh, it's always used, this term, throughout the Scriptures, it's always used of a people. Nowhere in the Scriptures is it ever used of a place. So if, uh, if this room, if we were all to get up and to go across the street to the chateau or something like that, and you were to ask your kids, point to the church, they should point to us and not to this building. The ecclesia, the church, is not a building, it is a people. And, uh, and this, this term, ecclesia, is used throughout the Scriptures. It's even used in the Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament's not written in Greek. It's written in Hebrew. Uh, but as the, uh, as the uh, church uh, progressed or as the people of God progressed, they began to translate the Hebrew into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, there is going to be in the Septuagint this word ecclesia that's going to be used any time that there is a gathering together of the nation of Israel. It's going to be called the ecclesia. It's going to be called this gathering or assembly. And so one of the places that we see that is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Deuteronomy 9, 10 says this, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly or ecclesia. Deuteronomy 23 uh, speaks of who may and may not enter into the ecclesia of the Lord, that is the assembly of the Lord, the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31.30, then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the ecclesia, the assembly of Israel. So again, in general, it's used for when various tribes of Israel were gathered together, were assembled together uh, for various purposes. So when the authors of the New Testament, 
when they are wrestling with what, what's the best word to describe this reality of these people that are being called out, Jew and Gentile together, into this new body? What's the best word to describe that? They don't have to come up with a new word. They simply go back to the Old Testament, to the Septuagint, and say, what is the Greek word that best expresses this idea of people being consecrated and called out to a distinct purpose of worship and so forth. And so that's the word that's going to, to uh, occur throughout the New Testament for the New Testament people of God, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly, the congregation, or as we would say, the church. Much uh, ink over the years has been spilled in trying to determine kind of what is the definition of uh, the church. You can see that most predominantly in debates about Roman Catholicism versus Eastern, uh, Eastern Orthodox versus Protestant, uh, Protestantism and so forth. Um, but depending upon your perspective, I think probably the most helpful definition for us, if we look for a kind of a simple definition for the church would be the community of all true believers for all time. The community of all true believers for all time. There, there is this view that uh, maybe even you heard as you were growing up that the church kind of begins at Pentecost, right? Anybody ever heard that before, the church begins at Pentecost? But given the fact that there is this continuity that exists between the ecclesia of the Old Testament and the ecclesia of the New Testament, I think it's better to think of the church as a bigger reality that is the, the assembly of all true believers for all time. It's not something that just begins in the New Testament. It's not something that just begins uh, at Pentecost. It's not something that just begins with Jesus. It is this reality that God has always called a people to himself and that people can be referred to as the church, or in other contexts, it could be referred to even as Israel. And so, what I think is really helpful about defining the church in this way, not this limited perspective that begins at Pentecost, but this more eternal perspective, is it helps us to kind of avoid a really misleading uh, question, and that is, what is the difference between Israel and the church, which can be a really, really uh, misleading kind of rabbit trail uh, for us, uh, because what we see throughout the Scriptures is that in some sense, there is this synonymous relationship between Israel and the church, that in some sense, Israel is the church, and in some sense, the church is Israel. We talked last week in Romans chapter 9, and we said, not all who belong to Israel are Israel, if you remember that. Not all who belong to Israel are Israel. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that there is this nation of Israel, but within this national people, there is a spiritual people. And that spiritual people is the true Israel. So there is this overlap that exists between this little subset of the nation of Israel that is true spiritual Israel there's overlap between that and what we mean by the church, all true believers for uh, all time. So where do we get this idea of this overlap between the church and Israel? If you have a Bible, you want to look at Romans chapter 2. We'll see one of the verses there. I'm not sure if I put it on your sheet or not. Romans 2, 28 through 29 
Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So as Paul is thinking of this question, what is a true Jew? He doesn't define it on the basis of biological descent. He defines it on the basis of belief. Even as we talked about last week, we had the example of Abraham. And Abraham has multiple sons. He has Ishmael and he has Isaac. And only one is the heir of the promises. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And only one is the heir of the promises. In other words, it's not biology that determines whether you are a part of the family of God. It's God's grace to us that determines that. It's not a matter of ethnicity. As we talked about last week, it's a matter of election. It's a matter of God's uh, choice of us. And so Paul, as he's reflecting upon it here, he says to be a Jew is not something that is a physical condition. It's a spiritual condition. Now, obviously, there is also this, this physical reality of the nation of Israel, but that's not the defining marker of the people of God uh, as we look at it from this eternal perspective. We see this also in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to flip over to there. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. He's speaking uh, mostly to Gentiles here. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. I got lost. Oh, there, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So my, uh, my alma mater for uh, my seminary degree uh, is this bastion of this uh, idea that historically held to this idea that, that is that the church is this spiritual people and the nation of Israel is this physical people. And so the church's eternal, uh, eternal state is a spiritual state. Kind of the church goes to heaven. Whereas Israel is this physical people and therefore it has this physical eternity. And so they spend eternity on earth. And kind of the idea is ne'er the two shall meet. What Ephesians 2 has just said is we have been reconciled into one body, into one hope that we share in this same 
reality, that, that in light of the New Testament, it is not Israel and the church. There's this overlap between the two such that the church is Israel, and it's composed of both Jew and Gentile. This is not anti-Semitism. This is not the idea that God has forever forsaken His, peop- his uh, ethnic people or something like that. No, it's that the church is comprised of both Jew and, uh, and Gentile. And so, uh, sometimes you might hear the, uh, the conversation on the church versus Israel as if the church is just some sort of parenthesis in God's plan. That God dealt with Israel, and then we have this parenthesis that is the church, and then God goes back to deal with Israel. But if anything, if you're really looking at it from this eternal perspective, you'll see it's really this nation of Israel that is the parenthesis in God's plan. That God's eternal plan is always to redeem the world to himself. And that Israel is this means by which he accomplishes it, by bringing the Savior into the world. So what we're talking about here, when we talk about this reality of uh, the nation of Israel versus the spiritual Israel, this subset of the nation that actually believed uh, in uh, Yahweh, we're talking about kind of the, the difference between the visible people of God and the invisible people of God. And that same distinction applies when we're thinking about the church. There's a visible church and an invisible church. All right, And so as you might expect, when I say visible church, I mean just as you and I see it. You look out in the sanctuary later today and you'll see 140, 150, 160 or so uh, people. But what you can't see is how many of those people actually believe, how many of those people actually love and trust Jesus Christ. So there's a visible people of God, that is what we see with our own eyes, but then there's also this invisible church. That is, those who actually embrace Jesus, those who actually trust. As in ethnic Israel, there was a distinction to be made between those who were merely outwardly Jews and those who were inwardly Jews. That same distinction applies uh, within uh, the church. Augustine said this, there are many sheep, uh, many sheep are without and many wolves are within. So in other words, there are those who are not a member of this church, or maybe even a member of any church. They're out in some sort of uh, farthest reaches to the ends of the earth or something like that. There's many sheep that are not actually within the visible church, and there's many wolves that are within uh, the visible church. This is one of the reasons that we as a church hold believers' baptism to be so important. Most traditions, we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but most traditions uh, practice paedo-baptism. Paedo-baptism is the practice of baptizing infants. And, uh, and when you're baptized as an infant, the idea is that at some point you might become a believer, but at that moment, the moment that you are baptized as an infant, you become a member of the covenant community. You become a member of the church. So if we were a Presbyterian church, for instance, uh, then what we would do is uh, we would have... Uh, already, or we would be uh, in the very near future, baptizing Larkin. And the moment she's baptized, she becomes a member of uh, the Parkway Church, that very moment. And then the hope is that at some point, she actually becomes born again, and she becomes a member of uh, the universal church, and she becomes a member of God's family, and so forth. 
But that's the idea there. There is this, this uh, intentional kind of mixing of the covenant community between those who are believers and unbelievers. What believers' baptism is intended to do is to protect that sanctity and to say there is, to the best of our ability, there is not this strong divide between the visible and invisible church. That everybody, to the best of our ability, that we are allowing into membership in this body is already a membership into Christ's universal body. Does that make sense, the difference there? And, uh, and the reason is because we believe there is a distinction to be made between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Testament, you had a baby boy at eight days old, you did something to him. What did you do? You circumcised him. You applied the sign of the covenant. In that moment, he becomes a part of the covenant community. He becomes a part of Israel, right? And, uh, and so what, uh, what Paedo-Baptist traditions are doing is they're taking that and they're just simply extending it. They're taking it and they're just simply moving it straight over into a New Testament context. Sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision. Sign of the covenant in the New Testament is baptism, and so they're doing a one-to-one relationship, right? But the Bible itself says there's going to be a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. This is really important to see that you can see that there is this fundamental difference that should exist between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in our understanding of this visible versus invisible church Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Listen to this phrase. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And listen to this language. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What he's saying is in Israel in the old covenant there was this distinction to be made between the physical people and the spiritual people. And he said, that does not exist in the church. In the new covenant, there is no distinction. There is not this reality that in the old covenant, if I was an Israelite, I would have to to speak to other members of the covenant community and say, know the Lord. What what uh, Jeremiah is saying here is in the new covenant, I won't have to tell you to know the Lord because you will already know the Lord. Now, I encourage you, I disciple you, You disciple me. Those kinds of things exist, but we're not, you don't evangelize those already within the church in the sense of bringing them to faith. That's that's a distinction between the old covenant and uh, and the new covenant. Because this new covenant, the, the distinction is that family is defined by belief and not by biology. In the old covenant, the family of God is defined by biology. It's a biological reality. It's genetic. In the New Covenant, it's not genetic. It's by grace. It's on the basis of biology. It's on the basis of belief. Do you believe? Do you embrace? Do you love and trust? Uh, And so forth. And so there is this 
similarity between the two covenants, but there's also dissimilarity between the covenants. It's similar in the sense that you apply the sign of the covenant to those who are entering into the covenant community. It's dissimilar in who is it that you are applying that sign to. What's interesting is it's actually more similar than we might even think because in a sense, we here practice a form of paedo-baptism. What I mean by that is we, f- we, we practice a form of baptizing infants. What do I mean by that? Well, in John 3, Jesus says what? In order to see the kingdom, you must what? Be born again, all right? And so what we're saying is we baptize those who are not physically infants, but those who are spiritually infants. So absolutely, that you take the sign, you apply it to those who are entering into the, uh, the covenant community, but we recognize that the way that we enter into the covenant community, the way that we enter into the church, the ecclesia, is not through birth, it's through rebirth. That's the dissimilarity that exists between uh, the two uh, covenants. And, uh, and so it's this, it's a failure to see this sort of distinction between physical and spiritual that also plagues Roman Catholic theology, not only on the, the issue of uh, paedobaptism, but also on the issue of the, uh, the idea of the priesthood. See, in a Roman Catholic mindset, there must be this physical linear descent from Peter all the way to the modern uh, pope uh, today, whereas we look at it from our perspective and say it's not on the basis of linear descent, it's on the basis of true doctrine. Is our doctrine the same as the apostolic doctrine? That's the question that we're asking. Not just do we have someone who is sat on a throne in straight succession all the way from Peter down to the, um, to the modern church. So we're going to uh, get into some of the specifics of ecclesiology, things like uh, government and mission and purpose and so forth. But first, I want to just take a moment and give you an opportunity to participate. And so think through what you have, uh, just think through passages of Scripture that talk about the church using images or metaphors. What are some of the images or metaphors that you can think of that, uh, that Paul or the other authors of Scripture might apply to the church in the New Testament. So take just a moment or so, maybe talk to someone around you, and then uh, we'll have you shout out a couple of answers. Again, images or metaphors for the church in the New Testament. Example of one, just it's like body of Christ. You're looking for things like that, body of Christ.
Okay, what are some metaphors that the Scripture uses for the church? Shout them out. A building, yep. What was that? The bride of Christ, yep. Family? Family, yep. Family God. Branches from the vine, yep. Yeah? Salt and light, yeah. What was that? Camp, yeah. Olive tree, here's some others. Olive tree, a field of crops, uh, a building, someone might have said that, harvest, a new temple. And I think one of the things is the effects of this diversity is if we think about all of these different pictures, it's kind of like the holding a diamond up in the light and you see these, all of the different faces and, uh, and you get a, a, a better perspective of the beauty of the diamond because of all of the different faces and all of the different ways that the light shines. In the same way, by looking at this sort of holistic view uh, vision of the church through all of these different images and metaphors that Paul and, and uh, the other authors of scriptures are going to use, uh, you're going to have a better perspective of what it is that the church is actually intending to communicate. That'll also help us from kind of neglecting some of the images or promoting one image to the exclusion of the others as if we're just the body of Christ and not also the family of God or not also the bride of Christ or whatever it might be. For the most part, whenever we're looking in the Scripture and we see all of these different images, the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and so forth, for the most part, when we see these images, they're going to be uh, applied on a macro level to refer to something that we call the universal church. That is every single uh, person um, in, uh, in the world, universal. But we also see these smaller expressions of this universal body. There are these micro expressions of the universal body. And so we'll talk about some different perspectives and kind of the flexibility that the Scripture is going to use in regards to the concept of the ecclesia or the gathering of the church or the assembly. So the first one being that the church throughout the entire world can be referred to as the church. That's the universal perspective. Oftentimes you'll see capital C church. If someone is writing and they want to distinguish between a local church and the universal church, they'll use a capital C in order to do that. And, uh, and so local church typically is used this little uh, lowercase, and then the universal church is the, uh, the uppercase. And uh, we see that in things like uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not talking about just Parkway or just First McKinney or something like that. It's talking about the church universal. Um, another word for this universal church is also the Catholic church. So we hear the word Catholic. We think Roman Catholic. That's not actually what the word means, though. The word Catholic just means universal. So the universal church, that is the Catholic church. If you've ever heard some of the ancient creeds and so forth, and they say that we believe in one holy Catholic church. That's what they're saying. It's not, if you embrace that, doesn't mean that you are Roman Catholic. It just simply means you believe in the reality that there is a universal church that is all believers uh, together. And uh, so, that's one example. 
Also in Scripture, the church in an entire city is called a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, all of those use the word church in that way. Uh, the church that's in an entire city or a region or something like that. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and uh, was built up. And in case you're wondering, that's a singular noun in that particular place. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee, Galilee and Samaria, the singular church throughout this entire area. So that's another way that Scripture uses it. Sometimes it will refer to churches in the plural, referring to this last way that it uses it, which is a much more micro level, that is local churches. A house church is called a church in Romans 16.5. Greet also the church in their house, or 1 Corinthians 16. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So you have everything from this universal perspective down to this regional perspective, down to this very localized perspective. And the Bible is going to use, it's going to be really flexible in the usage of the word ecclesia, of the word for the gathering or congregation of the saints uh, on each of those uh, level. So the way that you think about it is this universal Catholic church is comprised of all of the members of these hundreds and thousands of local churches. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the mission and purposes of the church. So if I were just to ask you, what's the purpose of a church? What would you answer? Edification of the body, yeah. To make disciples, yeah. Glorify God, yeah, absolutely. So you put all those things together, and I think you got the purpose of the church. Glorify God by making disciples. That's actually the mission statement of uh, the Parkway Church, that we exist to glorify God by making disciples through blank, 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 blank. Everything that we do through sermons, through classes, through community groups, uh, all of these sorts of things we are doing in an effort to do two things, glorify God and make disciples. And one of those is ultimate, and the other one is penultimate. One of those is primary, that is glorifying God. The other one is the means by which we do it, and that is through uh, making disciples. So the general purpose of the church is a people assembled together for the purpose of worshiping God. I forget where I got that phrase, but a people assembled together for the purpose of worshiping God. But more, more specifically, what is it that distinguishes a church from a Bible study? So a Bible study, they exist, hopefully, to glorify God. They exist to edify the body. They exist to make disciples. Or a parachurch ministry, what differences, what, what distinguishes uh, those from each other? We'll talk about a few certain marks or actions that might distinguish it. But first, let's talk about three purposes of the church. Three purposes of the church. You have one that is toward God. You have a purpose toward God. You have a purpose toward each other. And then you have a purpose toward the world. Purpose toward God, toward each other, and toward the world. And these different lenses are going to affect the way that we understand why we exist, what we're called to do as these people who have been called out. These called out ones have been called to a particular purpose. We've been consecrated, and anytime you're consecrated, you're consecrated to a particular task. What is that task? Well, toward God, it's obvious, worship. We exist to worship. 
toward each other, we exist for the purpose of, I think Jay said the word edification. We exist for the purpose of edification and encouragement, that we are to encourage each other all the more as we see the day uh, approaching. And then toward the world, we exist for the purpose of evangelism and service. Toward God, worship. Toward each other, edification and encouragement. Toward the world, evangelism and service. And you'll necessarily have an unhealthy church the more that they distort or neglect any of those particular purposes. So if a church doesn't worship God, then they're really distorted in their understanding of what they exist to do. Or if they don't encourage each other or they're not reaching out to the lost, whatever it might be, a healthy church is marked by these three purposes toward God, toward each other, and toward uh, the world. And the more that you distort or neglect any of those, uh, the more unhealthy uh, that your uh, church may be. But what again, what is it that distinguishes? So there are uh, parachurch organizations and Bible studies and that, those kinds of things that might exist for those same purposes, that might have a heart toward God, a heart toward each other, and a heart toward uh, the lost world. So what is it that distinguishes a church? And historically, there have been uh, at least two, oftentimes three marks of a church. <clears throat> so the historical marks of a church, the first two are kind of agreed upon throughout history, and then the third is kind of a, a natural outflowing that has been added to it. The first one being correct preaching of the Word, Correct application of the sacraments or the ordinances is the second one. So historically, that's what, and this really came about uh, in uh, the Reformation. There was a whole lot of, of ink that was spilled over this particular question as the, uh, the, the, the Reformers were looking to, to distinguish what is it that really makes a church? Is it this line of linear descent? No, it's doctrine, it's uh, the way that the church handles the Word and the signs of the Word, which are the sacraments. And so the correct preaching of the Word, the correct application of the sacraments were the two that they really uh, landed on. But then there's a third that's kind of a natural outworking of that, and that is the correct exercise of discipline, which we'll talk about here in a moment. So anytime that you're lacking one of these three or multiple of these three, the further you get away from being a healthy church. So the more that you are correctly preaching the word, the more that you are correctly applying the sacraments, the more that you are correctly exercising uh, the, uh, the good work of church discipline, the more that you are getting to uh, the purity of a church. And this becomes sort of less obvious as we kind of throw some situations on it. So it's really easy for us to think a church that worships Muhammad is not a church, right? So that is an absolute uh, denial of the first mark of the church, which is a correct preaching uh, of the Word. But what about a really charismatic congregation that absolutely believes Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, he's coming again, believes in the triune God, all of those kinds of things, but also teaches that uh, you should handle snakes and drink poison and those kinds of things, right? Would we call that a church? Well, I would tell somebody, probably even if I was writing back to them, I would say, you shouldn't go to that church, 
But in some sense, in my mind, I would still think, yeah, but in some sense, they're still a church. But the more and more that we begin to dilute and pollute these marks, the less and less comfortable we would probably all be in calling that thing a church. Does that make sense? But the more pure they are, the more that we can rightly understand that is a church. It's correctly preaching the word, correctly applying the ordinances, and correctly exercising discipline. So let's talk about the most controversial of all of those, and that is discipline. Look in Matthew 18. I think I included it on your sheet, but maybe not. Matthew 18. Someone read 15 through 20 for us. So what's going on here? There's this increasing level of escalation, this increasing, uh, which is redundant, this increasing level of engagement of somebody who is engaged in some sort of repentant, uh, I'm sorry, unrepentant sin. You see that, that there is this increasing. So it begins with uh, me going to Jay and saying, hey, Jay, I see this area of your life that's not in step with the gospel. I see this area of your life uh, that you are uh, engaged in some sort of outward sin. This is not a preferential thing. He's talking about sin. He's not just talking about issues of wisdom or differences of opinion or preferences or something like that. So I can't go to Jay and say, man, you should not tuck in your shirt or something like that. We're talking about an issue of explicit sin I go to him and I say, man, I love you. I love you too much to let you do this. And he says, I'm sorry, I don't care. And then Mike Edgman and I go to Jay and we beg him and we plead with him. We say, we love you. We love you. We don't want you to walk down this. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm doing it anyway. And then there's this increase, again, this increased uh, progression this increased level of engagement as we are calling him, beckoning him toward repentance. And there is this continual shunning on him that eventually ends with the entire church saying, we can no longer affirm that you're a believer because you're walking so contrary to the way that a believer walks. It's not that we're definitively saying, you 
Thus saith the Lord, you are not a believer. But we are saying, thus saith the Lord, this is the way a believer acts, and you're not acting like it, so we can no longer affirm that you are a believer. We pull your membership and so forth. That's what's going on here. This is so, there was a, actually a situation in the Dallas Morning News uh, just about two months ago or something like that. A local church exercised discipline on somebody who refused to repent from engaging in this sexually immoral uh, relationship. And uh, so that church engaged him, sent letter after letter, had meeting after meeting, and eventually he just said, I'm done. I'm out. I want this. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn. I think that you guys are wrong. I think the Bible is wrong. I think Jesus is wrong. And so the church kicked him out. And he then contacted a bunch of media and so forth. And just reading the comments on the Dallas Morning News, just all of this vitriol that's being spilled against Christianity as if we're being bigoted and unloving. How unloving is it if we were to do the opposite of that, how unloving would it be for me as a father when Larkin gets old enough uh, to say, you know what, you can go ahead and stick that fork in that electrical outlet. You can go ahead and just run in the street. It's okay. How profoundly unloving is that? The Bible over and over and over and over again is going to say it is not unloving to practice discipline. It is loving to practice discipline. In fact, The father who doesn't love their child refuses to discipline them. That's throughout Proverbs and Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. That's the entire point, that a father who truly loves a child will discipline them. And a friend who truly loves their brother is going to discipline them. I love you too much to let you pursue this adulterous relationship. I love you too much to allow you to divorce your spouse just because you don't like the way that they cook your food or whatever it might be. I love you too much to allow you to walk in this error, and so I'm going to engage you. I'm going to escalate that engagement until an eventual point of removing you from fellowship. But what does that mean? Jesus says here to go and... uh, if they refuse to listen even to the church, in other words, we've escalated to the final stage. We've told the entire church, the entire church has, uh, has approached this person in love, begged with them, pleaded with them, turned from this error, turned from this sin. We love you too much to allow you to do this. It says, if they refuse to listen even to the entire church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So your initial thought is, and this is probably should be your initial thought because this is just the kind of the natural way that you might think that this is what Jesus is saying is, well, well, Jesus, he loved tax collectors. He loved Gentiles and so forth. And so that's what it's saying we should do. We should eat with them. We should go over to their house. We should hang out with them. And maybe if we're real buddy-buddy with them, then maybe they'll repent But what I think is, in light of what the rest of the Scripture is going to say, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is actually saying. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, in other words, unbelievers, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen to those phrases. Not to associate with, not to associate with, not even to eat with. Purge the evil person from among you, which is uh, the same language as the Old Testament of kicking someone out of the community. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 6, and then 14 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. That's important there, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Titus 3, 9 through 11, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. In light of what Paul says, not only in these places, but in a number of other places, I would argue that Jesus is not saying to welcome and eat with and hang out with and be all chummy, chummy, buddy, buddy with those who have uh, gone through this entire process of discipline. He's saying the exact opposite. He's not saying you do exactly like I have done in all these cases with tax collectors and sinners. He's saying you as a first century Jew, which is his audience here, treat this person like you as a first century Jew would treat a tax collector and a Gentile. How would a first century Jew treat a tax collector or a Gentile? They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't associate with them. They would, in a sense, shun them. And the reason for the shunning is so that that person would be ashamed, so that they would be overcome by a sense of sorrow, that they would be overcome by their solitude. So, to uh, and, and we had this at my previous church. We had a number of people who, you know, we would engage throughout the process. Again, these are major sins. We're not talking about these uh, small issues of preference or so forth. Someone, you know, cheating on their spouse, leaving their spouse, whatever it might be. We would engage them throughout the process, escalate, escalate, escalate. This would be over the span of months of engaging. And we would finally get to the point where we said, we no longer can affirm your membership here because you're not acting like a believer. We would do that, and then we would inevitably have people in the church that says, I just want to love them, so I'm going to hang out with them, I'm going to do forth. That's kind of like saying to your child, go sit in the corner, and then you walk over to the corner and you sit with them, and then you give them video games and books and so forth, and you have everybody else come to the corner as well. Are they going to, in any sense, experience any degree of contrition for what they did? Absolutely not. What sort of punishment is that? What sort of discipline is that? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Paul is saying here, that there should be this sense in which you are overcome because you are cut off from the community. You're cut off from fellowship. And a true believer is going to feel that. A true believer is going to feel that sense of isolation, that sense of solitude, and that's going to drive them toward a place of sorrow, which is going to drive them toward a heart of uh, repentance. And so this is why we practice uh, church discipline, for the protection of the church. 
We practice church discipline for the protection of the church because the Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We do it for the glory of God. He will not be mocked. He will not be mocked by our habitual, unrepentant sin. And we do it for the good of the one disciplined. Again, the hope is that they would be overcome by grief. We don't do it as, an exa- as a way to lord authority over that person. We do it the same way that a father disciplines their child. Lovingly to say, don't do this. This is bad for you. This will not lead you into joy. This will lead into uh, greater and greater uh, sorrow. So having considered kind of the purpose and the marks of the church, I want to begin the end of our time talking about forms of uh, church government. And so this is probably the, the um, uh, area that is most controversial in regards to uh, the, the wide swath of the universal church. And so there's three main forms of church government that we should consider. And then there's all these little subsets uh, or um, smaller forms within each of these. The first one being Episcopalian. You have that here. Uh, that is from the Greek word episkopos, which is often translated as uh, overseer or bishop. Then you have Presbyterian, which is from the Greek word presbuteros, which is also translated as overseer or uh, bishop. And then you have a congregational form of government, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and congregational. Uh, so Episcopalian would be things like Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, um, Methodist Church, uh, Orthodox Church, and so forth. Presbyterian pretty much is just the Presbyterian uh, church, and then congregational would be things like most Bible churches, Baptist churches, and, and so forth. So by and large, everybody is going to fit into at least one of the subsets of uh, these three uh, categories. So Episcopalian, again from the Greek word episkopos, um, and, uh, and so I remember that, by the way, as a Greek student by Joe Episcopo, Pis- remember him? And, uh, and so I just thought, Joe Piscopo is the bishop. That's what, that was my thought in my mind. You got to come up with little things when you're having to memorize vocab. So Episcopalian from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer or bishop. These, by the way, episkopos and presbuteros, uh, some churches think of them as different things. There's a difference between overseer and a bishop. Biblically, though, they're referring to the same office. Biblically, they're referring to the same office. That is the office of elder. And so they, they are just different functions of the elder to oversee, uh, to lead. Same way like the word pastor. The word pastor really is just the word shepherd. And, uh, and so all of these are referring, though, to the same sort of idea, different uh, functions of the same office. But the Episcopalian looks like this. You have this archbishop, all right? You have archbishop. The prefix arch means chief or first. And, uh, and so you have archbishop, and the archbishop is in charge of a number of different bishops, all right? So maybe the archbishop's in charge of, let's say, 10 bishops, just for example. Each of those bishops is then over, um, let's say, 10 rectors or priests. And uh, all of those together make up what's called the diocese, if you've heard the word diocese. All of those priests uh, together make up a diocese. And then each of those priests is over a congregation. So one congregation has a priest, and then multiple congregations together are in this diocese that's going to be headed by a bishop. 
And then multiple bishops together in an area are headed by an archbishop. And that's the Episcopalian uh, version of church government. The Presbyterian uh, version is you have this uh, congregation. Congregation is led by elders. Those uh, elders are called a session. That's just what they call it, a session. Some of those elders, so let's say that, let's say Parkway is a Presbyterian and we have, currently we have seven elders. So you take those seven elders and maybe four of them would then roll up and also sit, in addition to sitting on the elder board of this body, they would sit in the presbytery, which would then be over a number of congregations. They would sit on that. And a couple of those who are in the presbytery would also sit on the general assembly, which gives oversight to even more churches. Does that make sense? So all of these are kind of, both Episcopalian and Presbyterian are kind of these triangle models where someone who up is up here has quite a bit to do with what's going on down here at these individual congregations. The difference between these versions and the congregational uh, view of government is that in the congregational view, there is this, this emphasis on the autonomy of the local church. In other words, if uh, I'm an elder here, I don't have any formal functional authority over another congregation. Whereas in, in Episcopalian and Presbyterian systems of government, there is a sense in which I could be an elder and emphasize or exert authority beyond just the confines of this one congregation. The benefit of that is because it means that in no sense, if this is our understanding of, uh, of what Scripture is teaching about church government, also called polity, um, uh, that we don't then have to submit. Like think of that uh, Westboro Baptist, you familiar with them? Those wackos who go and protest soldiers' funerals and so forth, all right? And so if, if we're... Presbyterian or Episcopalian, which they're not and we're not, but if we were, and let's say we're in the same general area, well, then their elders would somehow be in authority over us. That would be crazy for in any sense where we'd have to submit to those wackos. And so this is congregational uh, authority is this idea, or congregational government is this idea of the autonomy of the local church, that one church can be influenced by other churches, Certainly, we want to look at the churches around us. We want to look at the SBC. We want to learn from them. We want to glean from them and so forth. But if First McKinney comes out and says, you know what, from now on, we're going to fully affirm homosexual marriage, you know what that does for us? Absolutely nothing. We are in no way under their authority. And there's not some sort of, if the SBC does that, as we cooperate with the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, we are in no way subject to that. We can simply remove ourselves if we desire. And, uh, and so that's the congregational view. And then you have all of these different subsets of the congregational view. You have some that are single uh, pastor model, where there's just one pastor. He is the only elder. Then you have kind of deacon-led uh, or even deacon-ruled in some instances, model, and then you have purely democratic, but the most biblical form, the form that, uh, that we have here, I wish I had more time to kind of lay out the vision for it, but is uh, the plur plurality of elders view of congregationalism. Uh, and, uh, and so 
that is congregational in the sense that elder authority only extends to this particular congregation, but there is also this uh, view of plurality such that there is no uh, there is no ultimate authority that exists with Jerry or with me or something like that, that Wade and Chuck and Mike Edgman and so forth are just as much an elder as Jerry, even though Jerry's the senior pastor traditionally here, that there is this true plurality, that everybody gets one vote. There's seven people and they get one vote each and so forth. And, uh, and so, uh, that brings us to the uh, topic of offices. We'll talk really briefly about that just for the sake of time. There's three New Testament offices, only two of which uh, continue. When I talk about offices, I'm talking about officers. A church officer is someone who's been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. That's Wayne Grudem's definition. A church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. And so, again, three New Testament offices, first one being apostles. We've discussed that previously, why there are no apostles today because of the fact that they had to be commissioned by the resurrected Lord himself. They had to be a witness to the resurrection. They had to be among uh, the other disciples going in and out uh, in Jesus' public ministry. No one today meets all of those criteria. If you meet somebody who says they do, they're crazy, get them checked out medically. So there's no uh, apostolic office today. There are instead these, the role of the apostle, again, has been canonized into Scripture. The, the primary role of the apostles was to present apostolic teaching that has then been canonized for us in the Bible such that we no longer need um, uh, apostles uh, today. So the two offices that do continue are elders and uh, deacons. Elders, uh, also called overseers, bishops, or pastors, uh, different, uh, same office, just different functions and so forth. Their qualifications are listed out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And, uh, and, and all of these are, should be pursued by all. So you go, if you go and read 1 Timothy 3, you read Titus 1, you look at that and you shouldn't think, man, those are super Christians, right? It's things like don't get drunk and start a fight in a bar. That should be applicable to all of us. All of us should be striving toward these sorts of things. I heard a church that was, uh, that was not uh, allowing other people to teach because it said, this is a, 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 the office of an elder. Elders teach. Well, yeah, but there are all these other uh, qualifications of an elder that we would absolutely say, yes, just as a member of the church, you need to do this. You need to avoid greed. You need to avoid uh, drunkenness. You need to uh, love your family and be the husband of one wife and so forth and on and on. And almost all of those uh, qualifications are also going to extend to the deacons with the exception of the requirement of teaching. So whereas deacons can teach, again, any Christian can teach in different contexts, it's a requirement of an elder that he be able to teach because that's one of his primary roles within the church. His primary roles within the church is giving oversight, and the primary thing that you give oversight to is the primary role of the church. As we talked about the marks of the church, the correct preaching of the word. 
And so in order for someone to exert authority over and to protect the, uh, the apostolic deposit, they must be able to teach in order to discern truth from error.